Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us, as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And I would invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Acts, book of Acts chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning there in front of you, it's page 918 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We will be reading in a moment the first 33 verses of Acts chapter 10 this morning and was reminded this week that this book, the book of Acts, is written for us. It's written for the church. It's written to encourage us. It's written to strengthen us. It's written for us to help us and remind us because we're so prone to forgetting what it is that we're all about. It's to tell us, to teach us what a church is supposed to be like, what a church is supposed to do, and how Jesus Christ is still working and is still active and is still helping and transforming and changing his church. So, now that you've just got settled again, I would ask you to stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as we read Acts chapter 10, 1 through 33. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. 
When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from, from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied them, or accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who was called Peter." He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Unite our hearts to fear your name. 
and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Arise, go to Nineveh. That was the word of the Lord that came to a prophet named Jonah. A very simple, a very direct command. There's no way for Jonah to confuse or misunderstand the command that was given to him by God. Nineveh was a great city, but it was also a very wicked city. In the midst of all of her wickedness, Jonah was to go and to preach that the people of Nineveh were called by the Lord to repent of their wickedness. That's why Nineveh. This is why the Lord gave this simple command to Jonah, go, Jonah, to Nineveh. But what does Jonah do? Do you remember the story? For Jonah to go to Nineveh, he has to travel east. So, this is what Jonah does. He says, I'm going to travel west. (laughs) I'm going to go the very opposite direction that Nineveh is. So, Jonah goes to the city of Joppa, and there he finds a ship that's sailing to Tarshish. That's like the opposite of Nineveh, the opposite direction. Take me anywhere but Nineveh. Lord, I'll do anything you want me to do. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. Just don't make me do that, and don't send me there. What was Jonah's problem? Jonah believed that he rightly judged the people of Nineveh. And more importantly, Jonah thought that he had rightly judged the hearts of the people of Nineveh. You see, in Jonah's mind, there were sinners, and then there were sinners. He knew what the people of Nineveh deserved. He knew what God should do with those kind of people that lived in Nineveh. And the people who lived in Nineveh were the worst sinners imaginable. Most despicable, most vile, most heinous kind of sinners. Those people were wicked people, and they didn't deserve God's salvation. They only deserved God's judgment and wrath. If you remember Jonah's story, Jonah ends up going to Nineveh. Maybe not the way that one would want to go to Nineveh. He had to be swallowed by a great fish. (laughs) He spent three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish fish until he was finally vomited out onto dry land. And Jonah got the message, okay, okay, God, I'll go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes to Nineveh, he preaches, and the people repent. They turn from their sin. They listen to Jonah's warnings. And then you would think that Jonah should be rejoicing And listen to what Jonah says to God after that. 
Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah takes this great, grace-filled message of God, and he resents it in his heart. God, I knew who you were, and I knew you would do this. Those great words, I knew you to be a gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God, who relents from disaster. I knew you to be that God, and I knew this is what you were going to do. God, I knew that you would save people who didn't deserve to be saved. Who should not receive your grace. Have you seen what they've done, God? Do you know their wickedness? Do you know all of their kinds of evils? God, I know that you will save sinners, but not those kind of sinners. Don't you know, God, that there are sinners, and then there are sinners. How would Jonah dare to do such a thing? (laughs) Yet, would we ever wrestle with that same problem? God, I know that you save sinners. I know that you give saving grace. I know that you are love and you are setting your love upon your people, but just not those people. Just not that group. Just not those who have done the worst things imaginable. After all, God, don't you know there are sinners and then there are sinners? And if we are honest, sometimes do we want to be the judge of who we think is deserving of salvation? God, let me tell you who deserves to get in. God, let me tell you who is worthy to be called a Christian. God, let me tell you why this person would be a good follower of Jesus Christ. We think that we know better. We think that we know what is best. We think that it is our judgment and our estimation that is right and correct and true about who deserves salvation and who does not, about who gets, left, who gets in and who gets left out. But what's the problem? our judgment fails. That's all of mankind's problem, isn't it? So why does our judgment fail? To answer this question, we're going to look at this text this morning. It provides a major shift, a turning point in the book of Acts. There are certain major events that happen in the book of Acts, and oftentimes they are repeated. It's no different with this text, this event that happens, we're, we're going to see it repeated again later on in the book of Acts. But it's a major turning point because of the shift and the change that is happening, that is taking place. And just like all the change that needs to happen, this change begins by happening in people's hearts and in people's minds. That's where the change happens first, and then it's worked out in words and actions. And all of this happens in the lives of two people. One of them, a Gentile named Cornelius. 
and the other, the apostle Peter. It's through these events, specifically here in these verses, that we see a major change happen in the life of Peter. Think about that for a moment. Peter, oftentimes when we're in the Gospels, when, we're, when we see Peter with Jesus Christ and things happening there, we see a Peter who needs a lot of growth. <laughs> you ever heard that Peter sometimes had a foot-shaped mouth because he kept putting his foot in his mouth? Maybe we can understand that sometimes in our own lives. But now, here's Peter. He's a a leader of the church. He's an apostle. He's not only seen Jesus' death and resurrection, but he's seen Jesus ascend into heaven. He's seen the Holy Spirit come upon him. But here, Peter still needs to change. Peter still needs to grow. Peter hasn't arrived at perfection yet. There were certain things that Peter believed that he held on to. Even though he was a believer in Jesus Christ, even though he was still a leader of the church, he still needed to see that sometimes his judgment could fail. Peter was brought face to face with the reality of what needed to change. And unlike Jonah, who struggled to respond rightly, Peter responds rightly. So let us look at why our judgment often can fail when it comes to those who deserve, or when it comes to who is deserving of salvation. Number one this morning, our judgment fails because we fail to see what God knows is missing in people's lives. Our judgment fails because we fail to see what God knows is missing in people's lives. Have you ever had the experience where you're driving down a street or a road and you drive down that road all the time, you drive on that street all of the time, and one day it strikes you, when did that building go up? I mean, you travel this way all the time and all of a sudden there's this new building there. When did that happen? I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't notice it. You'd go, go this way all the time and, and and you missed it. You missed the building, right? And all of a sudden it's there. It's just, I didn't see it before. And now all of a sudden, when did that happen? How could we miss something that's so big? Yet how often do we miss what people really need in their lives? Truth be told, we can miss what we really need in our own lives. So, we need to also see what people can miss and what people really need in their own lives. We are introduced in this chapter to a man named Cornelius. He lives in a city called Caesarea. Caesarea was basically a Roman outpost. was a major center in Israel of all things Roman. And we see the Roman influence even in Cornelius' life, because he was a centurion. He was employed by the Roman government. He was a soldier in the Roman army who had charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. These soldiers were from Italy. That's why they're known as the Italian cohort. 
He was a centurion, and that meant he had a prestigious position. He had authority, he had prominence, he had wealth. And what's more to understand, we need to know that Cornelius was a Gentile. In the Jewish mind, there are only two classes of people. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. But he had adopted parts of the the Jewish religion into his life. And we see some of those parts adopted here as we read about him. It says that he was a devout, uh, devout man who feared God. He recognized the God of Israel as the true God, and he even led his household in that direction. Maybe there's an encouragement there for fathers today. Be the kind of father who would lead your house in the right direction as the one who is the main spiritual influencer in the lives of your family. So Cornelius led his household in this way towards God. He gave alms generously to the people. I mean, this is, he practiced charitable giving. He also prayed continually to God. And then we see something happen around the ninth hour of the day in Cornelius' life. That would have been about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, a time designated by Jews to be a time of prayer. And Cornelius had started this practice where he was praying during the Jewish times of prayer. And so we, we take a look here at, at Cornelius' life, everything that's described about him. What would we say? Cornelius has got it all together. I mean, Cornelius doesn't need anything else. Cornelius is pretty good. Look at all that he does. Surely he's accepted by God. Surely he's in the right. I think that we can say that these things in Cornelius' life are commendable. But the vision that he has with the angel tells us that something was still missing. And that something was everything. There it is that Cornelius is praying during the ninth hour. He sees the vision of an angel of God who comes to him. Here's this divine messenger sent by God himself to bring an important and necessary message to Cornelius. And Cornelius does what most everyone does when they encounter an angel. They're terrified. Fear grips them. He stares, terrified, at this angel who has come to him. Having the vision of an angel isn't a good, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a terrifying experience. But there was important news to be delivered to Cornelius. God had heard his prayers And that his acts of giving had not gone unnoticed. Here it is. The angel is telling Cornelius, God has heard you and remembers you. I think if there is encouragement, it's that Cornelius is on the right track. But we see in this message something still missing. God is preparing Cornelius, but something more was still needed. That's why the angel commands him to send for Peter. 
You still need something more, Cornelius, and so you need it, but it's going to come from this man named Peter. So Cornelius obeys and sends three men to Joppa to find Peter, to bring Peter back to him. I'm fascinated for a moment by what the angel does not do here. You ever think about that? What does the angel not do? The angel does not tell the message to Cornelius. Couldn't he have done that? I mean, just tell Cornelius the message that Peter's going to say and cut out the middleman, right? The angel, in other words, does not preach the gospel to Cornelius. This event could have been a lot shorter. (laughs) If the angel presented the gospel right then and right there to Cornelius, it could all have been said and done. But God had an instrument he was going to use in the life of Cornelius to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and that person was Peter. And not only was this message necessary for Cornelius to hear, The event would take Peter on his own journey and have a sanctifying effect on Peter. Maybe there's a side note here for us to think about. Just as Peter was designated by God to tell someone else the gospel of Jesus Christ, could it be that God has designated you to tell someone else the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that just as Peter was the man to tell Cornelius and his household the gospel, that God has so ordained that you would go, that you would tell someone else the gospel that needs to hear it. That you are the person designated by God to bring good news into other people's lives. There's another aspect of this that I'm fascinated by, and it's this, that all of Cornelius' goodness, all of Cornelius' religious activity, all of Cornelius' morality did not save him. This flies in the face of our failed judgment of people because that's how many people determine who is deserving of salvation today. We determine salvation in terms of goodness. Well, this person is really good. Well, look at all this person has done. All of Cornelius's goodness could not remove his Gentileness. Cornelius had reached as high as he could being a Gentile and practicing the Jewish religion. But guess what? It wasn't good enough. He wasn't saved after everything that he had done. He couldn't get any closer to God. And however close he had thought he had gotten, still wasn't close enough to have salvation. Cornelius was still a sinner. He needed the gospel message. That's what was missing. He needed Christ. That's what was missing. It is the gospel that is God's power unto salvation for everyone who believes. Are we willing to see what is missing in people's lives? Perhaps even willing to see what's missing in your own life. You can't gloss over it. You can't miss it. If the gospel is missing in someone's life, if the gospel is missing in your life, then everything is missing. 
we cannot put any confidence in our flesh that it's what we do that makes us acceptable to God. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, here's my resume, and it's an impressive resume. Look at everything that I've done. And then listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as dung, as excrement. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you don't know the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, then something's missing. The most important thing is missing. Do not fail to see what's missing in people's lives. Number two, our judgment fails because we fail to believe what God can make clean. Our judgment fails because we fail to believe what God can make clean. For the Jew, a major part of the law, major part of the Jewish law, was to remain clean. It does not necessarily mean physically clean, but this is a spiritual cleanness which allowed you to be close to God. So if you were considered unclean, that meant that you were cut off from God, you were cut off from the people of God. So as a Jew, you wanted to do whatever you could to remain clean, and you wanted to avoid everything that might make you unclean. Being clean versus being unclean was a matter of holiness. And the Israelites in the wilderness, when they wandered in the wilderness after Egypt, were told to be clean because the holy God walked among them in their camp. Part of these laws were set up to show the distinction between the Jewish people and the pagan nations that lived around them. And so one of the things that set the Jews apart was what they ate, their dietary laws. There were certain things that you could eat as a Jew that would keep you clean. There were certain things that if you ate them would make you unclean. So the Jews were very fastidious about what they would eat, making sure that they ate only things that would keep them clean, remove anything that would make them unclean. And that's what makes Peter's vision in these verses so unexpected. Here's Peter up on the roof, and usually in those days, the roof was a place where you would go, and here he's praying. It was a, a place to 
sit. It wasn't like our roofs today. No one goes on their roof, right, today, but it was a place where you would go and lounge. Here Peter is praying on the roof. And as he's praying, he starts to get hungry. So he's going to have something to eat. They start to prepare some food, and while they're preparing this food, Peter falls into this trance. He sees another sort of vision, and in this vision, the heavens are open. We've already seen the heavens opened another time in the book of Acts. When Stephen was being stoned, he saw the heavens opened, and as Bill so eloquently put it today, he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand. We've also seen the heavens opened at Jesus' baptism. It's clear that when the heavens are opened, we can expect this to be a divine communication, divine revelation coming from God himself. So Peter sees a large sheet coming down from heaven. And what's in this sheet? All kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. Most likely, this this sheet would have contained both clean animals and unclean animals. And then comes the voice from heaven. And most likely this is even Jesus' voice that's coming to Peter. He says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Remember, Peter's hungry. (laughs) But what does Peter do? He says, this is a test. I want to make sure that I pass this test that I'm being given by God. (laughs) You remember, Peter has failed other tests, hasn't he? Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, no way, God, I'm not going to deny you. What does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times. So, (laughs) I'm not going to fail this test. No way, I'm not going to eat the unclean things. No way, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I've never eaten anything that's considered unholy. Peter refuses to do as God says because he knows God's law from the Old Testament. He knows Leviticus 11. That's where we see all of those dietary restrictions there put upon the Israelites. He's kept all of those restrictions. He's remained different and separate from those pagan nations. In a sense, he's been a good Jew. Peter does not want to defile himself. He does not want to make himself unclean. And still, in his mind, in eating these forbidden foods would do just that. But God speaks again and instructs him further. God changes everything that Peter is thinking. God is doing something amazing by turning that value that Peter held on to on its head. God was going to use this to convert Peter, not convert in the sense of salvation, but but Peter had to have a new way to think. That old way of thinking had to stop. God tells him, what God has made clean, do not call common. There it is, right there, plain as day, God declaring all of these animals clean. God has made them clean. The restriction that Peter was holding on to in his mind is no longer there because God has changed it. There was nothing that anyone could do to make an unclean animal clean. Only God could pronounce unclean animals clean. And this event happened not once, Not twice, but three times. 
Peter's used to having things happen to him three times in his life. He denied Jesus three times. He was restored by Jesus, by Jesus asking him, Peter, do you love me? How many times? Three times. Now he sees this vision happen three times. This is certain. This is fixed. God tells him, what God has made clean, do not call common. We've already seen that Jesus, back in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 7, has already declared all foods clean. And obviously, again, here we see that all food is being declared clean for the Christian. There is no distinction of what we should eat. But what fascinates me is how Peter applies the meaning of this vision. Peter goes on later in our text to say this to Cornelius and all those who've gathered with Cornelius. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. For the Jew, the Gentile was considered unclean. You would not want to come into contact with Gentile people. You would not want to associate with Gentile people. You wouldn't enter into their homes. You wouldn't sit down with them for a meal. The Gentiles were unclean. But what was it that God had shown Peter? Even the unclean Gentiles could be pronounced clean by God. And they didn't have to go through some religious ceremony or procedure for that to happen. They didn't have to become more Jewish by being circumcised. No, God was doing something new. He was welcoming Gentiles he had made clean into his kingdom. He could save and would save Gentiles. The Gentiles who were unclean, who in no way could clean themselves, who no one else could satisfactorily clean, God would clean them. So what God has cleaned, do not call common or unclean. Who is it that we would say, there is no way that that person will ever be clean. There is no way that that person will ever be acceptable in God's sight. I remember flying out of Burbank, California one time, uh, sitting next to a man named William. William was a TV producer for a show called Good Morning America. As I sat to him, I began to read my Bible. And that action sparked a conversation. I don't remember how we got around to it, but there came a question to me like this. So can a murderer or child molester get into heaven? To which I replied that, if a person turns to Jesus Christ, put their faith and trust in Him, then God forgives. And if they have truly done that and believe, I believe that yes, they could go to heaven if they've trusted Jesus. In William's mind, that was about the worst thing I could have said. I don't believe that God would ever let people like that into heaven and leave out those other good people 
the people who had been victims of some awful or uncontrollable situation in their life. Right there we see the difference. I believe in a God who can clean people who have done awful and horrible things. William believed there were people who could never be cleaned. How many times in our life might we fall into that trap? There might even be those who believe that about themselves. You don't know what I've done, Pastor. You don't know the awful things that I have done, the things that I have said, the thoughts that I have thought, my actions that I have committed. There's no way that I could ever be clean. What God has made clean. My hope this morning is not in your ability to clean up your own life. If that's my hope, I am the most in the, in the most discouraging position as a pastor. If that is my hope, that you can clean yourselves up, I quit. My hope is rather in the Lord Jesus Christ who can clean up your life. He can cleanse you. He can make you clean. He can forgive you. And he can save you. Listen to Paul again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is bad news. But he doesn't stop there. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. His blood, the blood that flows from Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, makes the foulest person clean. His blood availed for me. Believe that God can clean the most unclean. Number three, our judgment fails because we fail to recognize the barriers that God has torn down. We fail to recognize the barriers that God has torn down. Just this past week, June 12th, it's been 31 years since President Reagan said those words. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was a highly controversial statement. Even within the Reagan administration, they didn't want President Reagan to say those words. But we know the rest to be history. Two years later, the Berlin Wall was torn down. A wall that many thought would never and could never come down, fell. In Peter's mind, and in many Jewish minds, the wall between the Jew and the Gentile was a wall that would never be broken down. But after Peter's vision, he is being changed. Peter is perplexed by this vision that he's just seen. He's pondering it in his mind, trying to understand what it means. And God sends him these three visitors as if to say, here's what it means, Peter. Peter. Don't have to wonder anymore. 
And right then the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and directs Peter to go with these men without hesitation. So Peter goes down to the three men to find out their request. They relate what's happened to Cornelius and his vision with the angel. They request him to go with them to Cornelius. And right then we see Peter change. Because look at verse 23. So he invited them in to be his guests. That's huge. Peter could have said, okay, I'll go with you, but you're Gentiles, so you stay out there. You go find a hotel, go find a motel down the street. You stay there, and then in the morning, you get up, and you eat, and I'll get up, and I'll eat, and then we'll make our way to Cornelius together. But he doesn't do that. He says, come on in. Come on into the house. There's a reason why they stood out by the gate and called in. Because Jews and Gentiles didn't associate. Peter brings them into the house. Even more, we see as the event goes on, Peter, when he comes to Cornelius in Caesarea, a place where most Jews would not have gone, most Jews would try to avoid Caesarea because of its Romanness, Peter goes there, he enters into Cornelius' house. Peter goes into a Gentile's house. Peter sees that not only inviting Gentiles into a Jewish house would not make him unclean, so now going into a Jewish house would not make him unclean. Cornelius had been looking forward to seeing Peter, and when he sees Peter, he falls down before Peter to worship him. We see how much Cornelius thinks of Peter. I mean, a prestigious man like Cornelius, falling down before Peter. But Peter says, stand up. I'm not deserving of worship. There's only one who deserves worship. I'm just an ordinary man. And Peter says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with the other nations. But now they're under a new covenant, a new law. God has shown him. The Jews would have said that Peter was breaking the law, but now Peter is obeying God by going into this Gentile's house, by associating with this Gentile. And it's telling us this, there is no distinction. The gospel goes out to everyone. God has broken down and removed all barriers. Everyone needs to hear this message. Everyone must hear this message. There can be and must be no barriers in our minds of who should receive the message of the gospel and who should not. The good news of Jesus Christ needs to go out to all, to to people who do not look like us, to people who have a different status than us, to people who we think might not need it or might not even want it. There is no favoritism with the gospel. In Romans 10, 12 through 13, it says this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, let those words ring in your ears for a moment. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. Let us not put up walls that God has torn down. Finally, 
for this morning. Our judgment fails because we fail to acknowledge God's plan to bring people into his presence. We fail to acknowledge God's plan to bring people into his presence. We might think in this text that God is doing something new. Gentiles are now going to receive the gospel. Gentiles are now going to be welcomed into the family of God. Gentiles now are going to worship this God and Jesus Christ. But if we read the whole Bible together, we see that this has been God's plan for all along. It's been God's plan for His glory to spread all over this globe. That's why He told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Because He wanted His glory to be all over the earth. Or how about when God was with Abraham, and God says to Abraham, Abraham, through you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Then if we read in the book of Isaiah, I love this, Isaiah gives us a picture of this coming day, what's going to happen. And he says this in Isaiah 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all of the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You hear that? All of the nations are going to flow to this mountain. All of the nations are going to worship the Lord. How has that happened? How are all of these nations brought to God? How are all of these nations brought into the presence of God? Through one man. That man is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Isaiah goes on to say. In Isaiah 49, 6, is it to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Or what Simeon says in the book of Luke about Jesus, that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It's through Jesus Christ that now people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be able to come into the very presence of God. It's now through Jesus Christ that all people can find salvation. Jesus Christ is God's plan to bring all people into his glorious presence so that they can enjoy him forever. Cornelius and all of his household and his relatives and his friends were waiting to hear the gospel message from Peter. And it says that they were waiting in the presence of God to find out how they could have such access into the presence of God and to find out how they could always have that kind of access. The only way is because we have that sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, Jesus Christ, who has gone before us to enter into that presence as our Savior. 
This is the gospel that we desire to go out to everyone. There's no favoritism here. All must hear this message. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who turns, who repents of their sin, who puts their full faith and confidence in Christ, saving action upon the cross, that's what makes people right with God. It's the only thing that can bring people into the very presence of God. It's the only thing that can give them eternal hope. I'm reminded of a story that's relayed by a theologian named I. Howard Marshall. He's there at the deathbed of his father. And his father is muttering something under his breath. And he's saying some of these verses here from Acts. I saw the heavens open as something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kind of animals and, and, and. Didn't know the words that came next. And someone relative leaned down and says, John, it says, and creeping things. He says, oh, yes, and creeping things. That's how I got in. This is how we got in, sinners saved by grace. This is how everyone gets in. Let our judgment fail, but let God prevail as we proclaim the gospel to everyone and let him lead sinners home. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is the message that we still need. Let us not be a hindrance. Let us not get in the way. There are people who need to hear this gospel. Everyone needs to hear this gospel. And let that be our desire. That's our prayer this morning. There's someone here this morning, Lord, who needs to hear this message, who for some reason thinks that they don't deserve to be clean or that they cannot be clean. Show them this morning that there is a way, but that there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That it's His blood that can make the foulest clean. It's His blood who's made us clean. What can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.